At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. It is December the 2nd today. And because of that, uh, we are turning towards our celebration of Christmas. And I think it's safe for us to ask this question today. And that question is this, when is it too early to begin to celebrate Christmas? When is it too early? Now, I am aware that some of you have very strong opinions about this, right? Is, Is before Halloween too early? I told you, you have some strong opinions about this. Is before Thanksgiving too early? Okay, we've, we've got some diversity here in our congregation today. Um, is before December 1 too early, right? We, we all have some different times where we think that it is appropriate to begin to celebrate Christmas. But a, a question that really goes along with that is this, what does it mean to begin to celebrate Christmas? Is it decorations? Is that what it means. In, in other words, do not hang Christmas lights outside before Halloween. I do not want my children trick-or-treating with Christmas lights up, right? Maybe that is where you draw the line. You, you don't want it to celebrate with decorations that early. Or maybe it's sales. You get tired of the, the, the commercialization of the season happening earlier and earlier every year. Or maybe for some of you, it might be music. Uh, there are certain songs that you want to relegate just to a few days a year. But, but here's my proposition this morning. If you have music that you do not want to hear outside of the month of December, my, my guess is that you're listening to the wrong Christmas music, okay? Uh, Christmas shoes, I get it. You don't want that in November. You don't even really want that most of December, okay? Um, but there are a number of fantastic Christmas songs that are so wonderful, not just because of their melody or their age or their enduring nature of the song, but because of who that song is about. See, at Christmas time, we sing about the birth of Jesus Christ and a wonderful gift that the church has and a wonderful gift that we get to share with our culture and our community, our city, our state, our nation this time of year are these wonderful Christmas carols. But here's the thing, as we listen to these songs over and over again, do we really know what they mean? Do we really understand the meaning of the songs that we sing? We're so familiar with them. Do we just know the first line or the tune, but do we really know what those songs are about? Well, this December at Wildwood, we want to help us understand what we sing about at Christmas time. And there's a number of things that we're going to do to help in that regard. But one of the things that we're going to do is we have a devotional that is prepared. And every day during the month of December, we're focusing on a different Christmas carol with a devotion uh, that is written. And you can access those on my blog, PastorMarkRobinson.com. And every morning at 6 a.m. from December 1 to December 31, a new reflection on a Christmas carol will, will be posted there each day. And then on the Sundays... Uh, during the month of December, our time of worship and the sermon will correlate with one of those songs. So that's where we'll be this month. And in this, the sermons, we're really going to be looking at how we can know the hope of Christmas past, of Christmas present, and of Christmas future. Now today we're going to kick off that series by looking at what is perhaps the most popular Christmas carol in all of North America. And that is the song, 
Joy to the World. Joy to the World was written in 1719. That's right, it's 60 years or so older than the United States is as a nation. It was written by a man named Isaac Watts, a prolific hymn writer and poet. And he first included this in a book back in 1719. As we look at the song Joy to the World today, I want to begin by, by looking at the lyrics, and I'm just going to read them. I'll make two promises to you. First of all, I'm not going to sing it alone. I'm just going to read the words to this song. But the second promise is we're all going to get a chance to sing it before we leave here today. So let's begin by just looking at the lyrics of Joy to the World. It says, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace, and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Now, friends, this song, again, was written in 1719 by Isaac Watts, but its roots go much deeper than 1719. As a matter of fact, the roots of this song actually go deeper even than the events of the birth of Jesus some 2,000 years ago. See, the words of joy to the world find their anchor all the way back in Psalm 98. We know that because when Watts first published this poem, he put it inside of a book called the Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament. And so he took the words of Psalm 98 and he used them as an inspiration for the poem he wrote, Joy to the World. And so for us to accurately understand what joy to the world is about, we need to go back to the source and look at Psalm 98 together. So I want to now read for us the words of Psalm 98, and then we will go back and look more at their meaning and their connection to joy to the world. Psalm 98 is a psalm, and it says this. It says, "'O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things.'" His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now, friends, that's the words of Psalm 98. And as Watts does in his song, our intention today is to imitate the message of that song in the language of the New Testament as we see its connection with Christmas past, 
with Christmas present and with Christmas future. The first thing that I think we need to look at is just the arrangement of the song. The song has three different movements in it. The first three verses deal with the past. The next three verses deal with the present. And the final three verses of the psalm deal with the future. So the psalm begins asking us to know the hope of Christmas past, the hope of God's salvation as revealed in the past. See, the psalmist begins, and it begins with a command or an invitation for us to sing, for us to lift up our hearts, for us to lift up our voices, our countenance, to be raised and focused on God and declare together something of who He is. We're to sing to the Lord a new song. We're to gather our voices and to, and to declare to Him something about what He has done. Well, what is that? Well, we're to declare to Him the marvelous things that He has done because His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for us. Now, when the psalmist wrote this, he was asking the nation of Israel to look back in their past and to praise God for what He had done in their history. This was an invitation for them to take an inventory and to look back at the time of the Exodus when God led them out of Egypt, the plagues upon Egypt, the passing through the Red Sea and the wandering in the wilderness. God's deliverance from Egypt was something that he asked them to remember and to praise him for. Not only the Exodus, but also their establishment inside of the land as God gave them the cities. We think of the stories like the story of the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. Israel is reminded to look back at the past at God's works of salvation and to thank Him and to praise Him and to sing about it, His marvelous things that He has done. Not only those things, but also all the way into the time of the establishment of the borders of Israel in the time of David and of Solomon. See, the, the people of Israel were invited to look back at the past to remember the things that God has done, and they were to sing about them. This is where the, the psalm begins. But he doesn't just talk in those terms. He talks about the effects of how God worked. Verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. What a fascinating idea. The idea here is that God did not just work his salvation in secret, but he did it in a public way. God did it not just in a way that the nation of Israel saw it, but he worked his salvation among his people in a way that the nations around Israel could see it and could understand the power of the God connected to Israel, the living God, the God who created all things. See, God did this in a public way so that the nations would know, so that, in the words of our song, so that the world would know. See, think about what happened in, in Egypt. All of the, the plagues that happened there and the, the wonders that were worked were done so that Pharaoh and the nation of, Israel, of, of Egypt would understand who the God of Israel was and the power that he had. We think about the, the work in, in the clearing out of the land as they moved into the promised land. That happened in such a way that the nations around Israel began to fear the God of Israel because they saw the power that he had. It was done in a very public way. 
Fast forward all the way to the works that happened in the time of the exile in Babylon. And we see as the Israelites move into Babylon and then into the the, the empire that was run by the Medes and the Persians, in a number of ways God revealed his great power so that the nations could see it. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were placed inside the fiery furnace, but they did not burn up. So that when the pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, looks inside, he says, whoa, the the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is something special. He is a living God. He is present with them in their time of trouble. When Daniel is thrown to the lion's den and the rock is placed over the top of that place where the expectation was that Daniel would be eaten by lions, he's not. And when Darius the king comes and moves that stone away and he looks down inside the cave and he sees Daniel sitting there. What does he do? It says in Daniel chapter 6, then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. He says, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before who? Before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. See, because of the way that God worked his salvation in very public ways, the nations, the world, we're able to come to know more of who God is. Now, friends, if that's the words of Psalm 98, let's take a moment and, and lay that over the top of our experience in celebrating Christmas. See, when we celebrate Christmas, we remember God's salvation becoming very public. See, the, the events of of Jesus' life and ministry were not done in a closet. They were not done in secret. You know, often we, we think of the birth of Jesus, and certainly it wasn't as majestic as we would have expected. It was humble. It was in a manger. But it was not a secret. As a matter of fact, prophets had written for hundreds of years about when Jesus would be born. The, when the Magi show up in Bethlehem, they, they ask the scribes, where and when is the Messiah to be born? They knew where. It was not a secret. They just didn't go. They didn't care. But God didn't have it as a secret. It was identified in prophecy. When Jesus is born, angels are in the sky. When he's born, a star lights the way. His public ministry that he lived out throughout his days was not done in secret. It was done with thousands of people around. And it was done in the region of Galilee. I think, remember, this is a significant thing. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew now for Um, what feels like forever, right? Two or three years we've been in the Gospel of Matthew on our Sunday mornings as we've had sermons from that book. And and as we look at the Gospel of Matthew, we see that the majority of Jesus' public ministry was done in the region of Galilee, the northern part of Israel. And that was significant because in the northern part of of Israel, in, in Galilee, this major highway called the Via Maris ran right through the middle of it. It was the I-35 of its day. Jesus stages his public ministry in a location where people from all the nations are passing through on trade routes and on travel so that they might be able to see and hear who he is. 
Not only was his ministry done in public, in, a, in an area that was surrounded by the world, but, but, also, but also his death was a very public event. When Jesus goes to the cross, he, he died in a very public way. It was a public execution. It wasn't done in a hidden form or fashion. It was right along the edge of the highway. That's significant. There'd be no denying that Jesus had really died because it was a public event. God has not hidden this. He's had these events in public. His, his tomb, his grave was, was not hidden someplace. It was in a location where people knew they could go and they could visit. We can still go. We can still visit. And guess what? It's still empty. When we think about what Jesus has done in the past for us, in a very public way, he demonstrated the salvation that he offers to you and to I. He did not do it in secret. He did not do it in private. Because not only does he want you to know, but he wants the world to know as well. The public nature of Jesus' birth, his life, and his ministry remind us that we have an opportunity to proclaim the greatness of our God to the ends of the earth. This is why we send missionaries all over the world. This is why after this service in the gathering hall around noon, we're going to have people gathering who are interested in going on a mission trip next summer to Brazil be a part of a church plant that we're, we're having there, a short-term trip. If you're interested, go out there. Why are we doing that? We're doing that because we have an opportunity to declare the greatness of God and his salvation that was done in the past, to declare that to the world today. Joy to the world. Why are we having three services this Christmas Eve? To create the opportunity with some empty seats for us to invite our family and our friends to come and to know Jesus with us. It's joy to our community. It's joy to our neighborhood. It's joy to our family. It's joy to the world. It's not just joy to us. The hope of Christmas past, the salvation that God wrought in Christ. Second thing that I think we need to see, though, is the hope of Christmas present. If the first three verses invite us to look backwards, the next three verses Talk about the present, right now, where we are, what, what we can do today in this moment in light of what God has done in the past. The response of the middle three verses, verses four to six, invite us to do something. I want to read them again for us, and I want you to think about what it's inviting us to do. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, before the Lord. Now let me ask you, is that an invitation for us to be quiet? Is that an invitation for us to be somber? No, this is an invitation for us to celebrate and to celebrate with songs. Why is it that when we gather here on Sunday mornings that we have music at the beginning parts of our service? Have you ever wondered that? Like, why do we do that? Is that just because we need something to fill up the whole time? Or is that because we just so happen to find some people around that have instruments? No, it's a very intentional step. As followers of Christ, we've been invited by the God who created us to gather together 
and to take all of the instruments and all of the ways that God has placed at our disposal to, to make much of him, there's something to celebrate. So let's grab what we can and use it to celebrate. Let's, let's take a keyboard and a piano and a microphone and guitars and an electric guitar and a bass guitar and there's a lot of guitars and the drum set. And let's, let's bang it. Let's celebrate because there's a God who can celebrate. Do those things amplify our emotions? Absolutely, but appropriately so because there is someone who is worth celebrating. And so we gather as a church family and we make much of it in the present because of what God has done for us in the past. And at Christmas time, this comes home even deeper, doesn't it? Because Christmas has so many wonderful songs. So many wonderful songs that, that point to the reality of our God that we get to sing together. Uh, the picture of these middle three verses is almost that of a, like a ticker tape parade. You know, when OU wins the title. Why did I say that? Everybody's going to check their phone to see if we made the playoff. Okay, forget that. Win the Thunder, win the championship. What would happen in downtown Oklahoma City? There'd be a parade and a celebration. Why? Because our heroes had conquered and they came home and we celebrated. Why do we celebrate as a church family? Because the king has conquered. Joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Let men and women their songs employ. We gather together and we sing and we lift up the name of Jesus because he is worthy. The psalm invites us to do that. Now, I want to invite us to do that all month. That's why these devotionals that we have point to the meaning of these songs because I want us to sing them. You know, you might go, music is fine for others, but, you know, I'm more of a words person or whatever. Hey, guess what? The Lord has invited you to sing. He's given you a voice. It may not be as good as the person sitting next to you. Mine isn't either. But together we have the privilege of singing about the greatness of our God because he's worthy. And there's something that happens with melody and tune that lifts our hearts and spirits to a more appropriate level. Still not where it needs to be, right? Because God is so great. How could he be contained in a song? We get to lift up our emotions with him. We do that in music. And in this, this Christmas Take, take the carols and, and, and think about what we're singing and have your heart rest and celebrate and worship even more. A few years ago, our family started this tradition where we'll pick a Christmas carol every year and we'll, we'll take that carol and we'll, we'll, we'll sing it and we'll look at a verse each Sunday during the month of December and we'll talk about what that means. Uh, this year, I think we decided last night, it's God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen is going to be our song for this year. And so that's going to be the Robinson family song. But it's just something that you can do. Um, we're blessed. My son can play the piano, so that, that helps at our house. When we sing it, it we, he can carry the tune for us. But even if you don't have that in your home, or even if you're not married, and you're just by yourself, or you have a roommate, but take some time to sing some this Christmas season. You know, I was at an event earlier this year, and, and at the event, uh, Dr. John MacArthur, who's a pastor in Southern California, celebrating 50 years of ministry this year, was asked uh, how is it that, that you have helped your kids come to follow Christ? And how have you given them this hope? And you know what his answer was? I thought it was so interesting. His answer was this. He says, fill your home with the songs of the Lord. Fill your home with the songs of the Lord. Now, such a simple thing to say, but I think it's really pretty profound because think about all of the songs you remember from your childhood. 
right? I know all the words to songs I wish I could forget from my childhood. I know all the words to the Christmas carols from my childhood. And if our home is filled with the songs of the Lord, we we have the opportunity to, to fill our minds and our hearts with the truth of who God is, and it inspires us to worship and make much of Him throughout our lives. Fill your homes with the songs of the Lord. That might mean listening to the sports animal a little less for me. It might mean just putting some music on in the house that's something um, that we're doing right now in the Christmas season. It's easy, but even before that, uh, after hearing this, we started listening to this Shane and Shane. The band Shane and Shane has an album on the Psalms, modern adaptations of ancient Psalms. It's beautiful, and, and we, we've just been listening to that more in our house. It's just a, a way for, for us to, to fill our hearts and heads with the, the emotion of the greatness of God and with the truth that is declared in the lyrics. In the present, we celebrate the salvation that God has wrought in the past, the hope of Christmas past, the hope of Christmas present. But the psalm uh, concludes, Psalm 98 concludes, with a look towards the future, the hope of Christmas future. We see this in the last three verses of this psalm, 7, 8, and 9. And the picture of verses 7, 8, and 9 is a picture that we see echoed in joy to the world very clearly. I, I think when Isaac Watts wrote his, his hymn, uh, much of the inspiration he got came from the last three verses of this song. And, and in, the, in the psalm, it's, it's interesting because the things that are described here certainly have some measure of truth today, but the fullness of the truth of verses 7, 8, and 9 will not be experienced until a future time. You see, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he ushered in the salvation of our souls. When he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead to, to, to secure that victory, and all who have trusted in him, past, present, and future, have the opportunity to spend an eternity with God forever in heaven. That's what he accomplished at his first coming. But in verses 7, 8, and 9 of Psalm 98, the, the psalmist is describing things that have not yet fully happened. And in Watts' imitation of that in the language of the New Testament, he's describing realities that have not yet fully happened. What are those realities? Well, one of the things that you see is you see heaven and nature singing in these verses. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills Sing for joy together. That's not the hills like when Greg and Katie will be up here maybe on Christmas Eve night singing together. It's not what that we could we could call that too. We'll we'll put that banner underneath you guys that day. But this is talking about heaven and nature singing. Now there's a portion of that that is true today. We think of Psalm 19 talking about the heavens declaring the greatness of God. We think of Romans chapter 1 talking about the invisible attributes of God's power and divine nature are proclaimed to every person who observes the created order. Um, Certainly those things are there. But when we think of heaven and nature singing, there's a time that is still yet future when nature will return or be redeemed and restored to something even better, something that doesn't have earthquakes and forest fires and destruction. 
So a place where the lion will lie down with the lamb in the words of Isaiah the prophet. There's a time in the future when heaven and nature will sing in a new way. The song in the psalm, look in that direction. He talks about the world and, and all those who dwell in it, that, that every heart on the earth would make room for the king. That's something that has not yet happened. There is, is, a, is a time coming in Romans chapter 11. It talks about this, when the remnant of Israel will all fully embrace their Savior in the end. But that time is not yet. We're still waiting for that thing to happen. Also inside of the, the song, Joy to the World, we, we have this, this idea of a curse existing upon the earth. You remember verse 3 of Joy to the World? We read it earlier. It says it this way. It says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Well, what is the curse? The curse points back to Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, sin entered the world, and, and a curse came into this world. We were then born sinners. We were born with an independent, rebellious spirit against our God. That's a part of this curse. But even the world in which we live began to feel some effects. Thorns and thistles made work more difficult, labor harder. Death came into the world, and with it, illness and suffering and all of those other things. Now, now let me ask you, has anyone in this room struggled with sin this week? Yes. Has, has anyone in this room suffered with sorrow this week? Yes. Yes, I, I think about just in my own life, our dear friend of, of, of ours and, and member here at Wildwood, Mike Hargis, uh, passed away very early Friday morning this last week. And just the, the sorrow um, of that, a reminder of uh, the effects of the fall and the challenge of this world. Now, Mike knew Jesus. He, he is with him forever, but we still live in a world that has sorrow, don't we? Good friends of ours, missionaries in another country of the world were, were kicked out of their country because the country didn't want them to proclaim Christ there. We still live in a world that has sin and sorrows that is growing. So, so when we sing this, we're not singing about something that has already happened. We're not singing about the curse that has already been removed. We're not, we're not singing about the blessings that are already flowing in, in every facet and every structure upon the earth. This is a, a hope, a declaration of a future time when Jesus will come back to the earth. In Revelation chapter 19 through 22, we see the picture of Jesus' return to the earth and him establishing a kingdom upon the earth. And when Jesus establishes that kingdom upon the earth, guess what happened? He will rule the earth with truth and grace and make the nations prove the wonders of his love. That's what's going to happen. That's why the psalm ends the way that it does in verse 9. When the Lord comes, he will come to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and his people with equity. No longer when Jesus returns will people in the South Sudan, women, have to fear walking from village to village for the fact that they're, they're people who represent their government, who is given to protect them, so they would not have to fear them attacking them instead. There will come a time where 
The world will not be ruled in such a way. That time is not yet, but it will be when Jesus comes back to the earth. You see, when we sing joy to the world, we look towards the future, to a time when thorns and thistles will no longer infest the ground because Jesus has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Friends, we have an opportunity to worship with hope at Christmas in every other month of the year. Because this message is not seasonal. This message is universal. It's something we celebrate and sing about and point people to. We can have a hope that is not just relegated to a little list of a few material things that we may or may not get this year. It is something that is guaranteed to happen, and it's a glorious future for those that know Christ. So the question is, do you know the hope of Christmas past, the Savior who was born, who bled and died for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you know the hope of Christmas present? Are you declaring that in your, your songs, in your, your life as you live it out right now? Do you know the hope of Christmas future, of the reality of what God is going to do at the return of Christ? If so, then we understand why we of all people have reason to sing that there is joy to the world. Now, friends, as we end our service today, we're going to end by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And we think of the Lord's Supper, it is this symbolic meal that Jesus gave to his followers. And he gave it to them on the, the night before he went to the cross. He, he took uh, the cup and he took the bread and he said, these two things are a symbol of what I am getting ready to do for you. They represent my, my body and my blood that I am getting ready to offer as a sacrifice so that you might be forgiven. And Christians for the last 2,000 years have been gathering together in places just like this and celebrating that meal, remembering the salvation that God offered to us in the past, remembering that here in the present as we worship him. And what's interesting is Jesus invited us, said, as you celebrate this meal, I want you to do it in the present until that future time when Jesus comes back. Jesus said, when I come back, this, this meal will no longer be necessary because I'm going to be right there. You don't need a reminder. I'm going to be with you. And so we celebrate this meal now until he comes again. And so at this time, I'm going to invite the team that's going to be serving communion to go ahead and move into place and, and grab the trays uh, the, the way that, that we, and begin to pass, the, the way that we celebrate communion here at Wildwood is anybody who has trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, whether that's something that happened months ago, weeks ago, or that's something that just happened uh, this morning as, as we've been meeting together, um, we invite uh, you to participate in the Lord's Supper together. So if you would just grab the trays uh, team and go ahead and move into place and begin passing those, um, they're going to be passing these trays up and down uh, the aisle while we're concluding our message uh, together. And then after we all have a chance to be served, then we will uh, spend some time singing Joy to the World together.
So as they're moving and beginning to pass these trays, I want to just talk about uh, just the picture of this celebration that we're having here. The celebration of, of remembering what Jesus has done for us is something that in the biblical accounts never happens alone, but it always happens in community. It's believers, plural, that gather together and, and break bread together. It's something that we share. It's not something that we just do alone. It's a gift that reminds us of the scope of God's work. It's not just joy to Brandon, it's joy to the world. It's not just joy to Scott, it's, it's joy to the world. It's not just joy to Julie, it's joy to the world. We remember that as we celebrate this together because Jesus came for more than just one. He came for all of us and offered his life as a sacrifice for all of our sins. And I think about the picture of that. I, I, I saw an illustration this week that I thought was very, very powerful. It talked about the, the difference between a babbling brook and a mighty stream. You know, if you think of, of going to Colorado in the summertime and going to the mountains, you might see a number of little streams after some rainfall, water that's collected between the rocks. And as that water collects between the rocks and begins to move its way down, it's a little babbling brook. It's, it's pretty. It represents something nice, but it's not all that powerful. But what happens over time is that little babbling brook connects together with other little babbling brooks and becomes a stream. And then those streams over time join together with other streams and become a river. And then those rivers over time as they flow together will eventually hit a, a, a spot where they fall as this mighty waterfall. And the power of that waterfall is so, so powerful. I, I, this, this article that I read said that Niagara Falls generates enough power to power four million homes. Now that's powerful. No babbling brook can do that. But all of them collectively, now that's something different. Friends, we gather today not just as a little babbling brook. That we can have a, a walk with God that is beautiful. We can read the scripture. We can pray to him. We can relate to him alone. But as we gather as a small group, then we come together and form a little stream. But as we gather on a Sunday like this, in a room like this, we're much more than just a little stream or just a babbling brook, but we are a river, friends. We're a river reminding us of the scope of God's work, how he has offered salvation and joy to the world. 